living because they don't have the vaccine is not right. I don't agree with that at all. We ought to all stand against that. However, our sister Ermin, as I said, hasn't worked for, I'm not sure how long. She's behind on her rent. I'll come right to it. She's behind on her rent. This morning, she reached out for the first time to Claudia, like early this morning, and told her, you know, of this need, right? So Claudia right away formed a group of the folks that are already on signal. So uh, many of you have heard this already and we're really responded. I just want to open it up to everybody else who's not part of that group and don't know what's going on to give you an opportunity here to reap a reward. There's a blessing with com- that comes with helping others in need. And you know what? You don't even have to give a lot. Even a little bit. Even a little bit. Whatever your heart puts on you to give, just give it. You know, give it willingly, give it cheerfully. There, there come a time when you need a blessing in your life as well too. So here's an opportunity where you can give, give generously, give as much as you can, whatever was put on your heart. And Yah will, will be faithful to His promise to multiply it for her and to multiply it back in your life. Whatever we give will meet her need exactly. Somebody asked, uh, how 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 far behind is she in her rent? How much is her rent? You know, we have no clue. We don't know what you know what her rent is, but we know that if we do as I, as we said, if we do this in the spirit, it will meet the need. It will meet her need. Whatever it is we collect, it will meet her need, and Yah will will multiply back for us as well. So I'm giving you the chance. You know, some of you, as I said, have responded already. You know, at first I said to Claudia, like, should we be doing this on the Shabbat? Like, people sending money on the Shabbat. And she said to me, is it lawful to do good on the Shabbat? So I had to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, you know, if you don't want to give on the Shabbat, you won't do it after, that's fine. We're collecting, they're trying to collect the donations in one place. And if you send it to doerromaine at gmail.com, D-E-W-E-R. R-O-M-A-I-N at gmail.com. It'll go to one place and then from there we can bless her with it, um, you know, as soon as uh, as soon as we can. Okay? So, enough said? Yes, and thank you all to those who have already responded. Um, may God bless you. Amen? Amen. Okay. Okay, so um, let's put up Tom's teaching and we'll get right into that. Cleared up. 
And when and if it did clear up, then a seven-day period of purification was performed, after which that person could rejoin the community standing. Now, let me explain something that is badly misunderstood. Ritual uncleanness still exists in our day. Yeshua did not somehow universally do away with all uncleanness in this world. However, he did make his disciples clean. We are told when Christ was crucified, two fluids flowed out of him. Remember that? Blood and what? Water. His blood atoned for our sin. His living water made us clean. Both fluids were necessary on our behalf. And as we find out in the Torah, atonement is not the same thing as ritual purification. Atonement is the price that is paid for our sin. Purification is the removal of the uncleanness that's caused by that sin or caused by some kind of contact with something unclean. Further, uncleanness will continue to exist in this world until the new heaven and the new earth. The only place on this planet that uncleanness doesn't exist is in the heart of a believer. That's it. Yet uncleanness can be reintroduced. Listen to 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or of the covetous and the swindlers or with idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. I actually wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reveler, or a drunkard, or a swindler. Don't even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you, do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside, not judges? Remove the wicked man from among us. Hmm. That's a little different than how we usually hear about this, isn't it? Matter of fact, it's the opposite. That's what happens when you study the Bible and actually read what it says. Here we have believers who have decided that they can continue with unclean evils. Somehow it doesn't matter since they've accepted Yeshua. So you argue. But this passage speaks of immorality and wickedness. Where does it say unclean? I have a question in return. Do you think that Yeshua removed the uncleanness from wickedness? Do you think he took the impurity out of immorality? In other words, would you advocate that upon the crucifixion of Christ, he took the impurity out of sin? Sin is now clean? I mean, it makes sense, does it? But in an odd way, that's the implication of the traditional church, church teaching on this subject. Although I think it's mainly because they don't know 
that there is a distinct biblical difference between uncleanness and sin. Now, hopefully by now, you have learned in Torah that all wickedness is inherently unclean. All immorality is inherently unclean. That's not because I say so. It's because God's word says. Now listen to this passage describing the very last hours of mankind's history as we know it. Revelation. In other words, this is a time that's still well future sorry. Revelation 21.1, it starts out like this. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. So we know we're talking about the time Revelation 21 is speaking, when it's after the current time we're in, because we have a new heaven and a new earth being reformed, just like it was a creation. Now let's read a little bit more, understanding that the end of man's history has come, and the kingdom of God is fully in. Moving to Revelation 21, 25, it says, And in the daytime, where there shall be no nighttime, its gates will never be closed. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying, shall ever come into it. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb. Nothing unclean shall enter. If unclean stopped existing in 30 AD when Yeshua died, then why is it that 60 years later the revelator John wrote about uncleanness as still continuing to exist far into his future existing right on up until the new heaven and the new earth were being created and the new Jerusalem is just a sin. Only Gentile Bible scholars and teachers uninterested in the Hebrew scriptures or the Torah or Bible history or Hebrew culture want to put forward the scripturally unsound idea that Jesus did away with uncleanness. If he did, then what's the difference between the world and us? Yeshua also came to save the world, didn't he? Is everybody saved? No. Because salvation is in a certain sense a two-way street. The only part of the world that can be saved. Folks, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause the uh, teaching for a second. The audio is kind of acting up here a bit. I want to see if there's something I can do about it. Just give me one second, please. itself over to him to be saved. The rest are not saved. The rest 
are marked for destruction. It's the same with uncleanness. He cleansed us, his believers, from uncleanness. He didn't make the world's uncleanness clean. He atoned for our sin. He didn't do away with the world's sin. At least not yet. If he did, how come evil men fly jet airplanes into tall buildings? How come men kidnap Christian missionaries and saw their heads off? How come some believers cheat on their spouses? Why do disciples of Yeshua still occasionally tell a lie? Or say something hurtful? Or behave in our own self-interest? Or get angry because we don't get our way? Or constantly seek to be served instead of serving? The Bible defines every one of those things I just said as sin. And every sin is unclean. There is no such thing as a clean sin. Just because the sin occurred in a believer. Or did Christ take the uncleanness out of sin? See this revolving door? You can't get there from here. And when we sin, we automatically introduce uncleanness into our lives. And uncleanness is incompatible with holiness. The holiness that lives within us is the spirit of Jehovah. Oh yes, Jesus can and did cleanse us, his followers. He can cleanse anybody who trusts in him. Don't think for a minute that we can wallow and participate in uncleanness and not have our relationship with God negatively affected. Of course it will. Listen to Paul speaking to two Gentiles, by the way, in this passage. Romans 11, starting at verse 19, you'll say then, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted right be grafted in quite right they were broken off for their unbelief but you stand by your faith don't be conceited the fear for if God didn't spare the natural branches neither will he spare you behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity but to you God's kindness if you continue in his kindness otherwise you'll be cut off see there's a direct quid pro quo that ends with a threat if you continue in faith to God, then you'll revel in his kindness. But if you fall away, what happens? Be cut off. Many New Testament passages echo this exact sentiment because this is just a basic restatement of the Torah with the newness now of faith in Yeshua, a long-promised Messiah added to it. Why would there be a threat if it wasn't even possible? Does God make hollow threats? We're going to develop that more a little bit later. The point is, uncleanness still exists, and you can still be polluted by it. If you seek after it, if you don't protect yourself, and the Lord who lives in your midst, from that. And should you become tainted by uncleanness, it will, at the least, harm your relationship with God. So as we encounter the issues of uncleanness throughout the Old Testament, as we will throughout the remainders of chapters 5 and 6 of Numbers, don't turn your minds and hearts off to it. They ask for them. Understand, it's an issue not only of ancient history, it's speaking to us today. It's often said, 
But foolish general would not want to know the tactics of his enemy. See, we're being very blind and foolish when we think that we are utterly immune to the effects of uncleanness, and so we should have no fear of it because we honestly think it no longer exists. We have many inside and outside the church now preaching that even evil doesn't exist. Our enemy, God's enemy, Satan, has convinced many people not to fear God, not to obey his laws, and not to think that they still have to strive to remain pure despite Paul's and Peter's and even Yeshua's admonition to never think that way. In fact, Paul calls such a thinking, right here in Romans 11, conceit. See, this is not a call to return to following the law in the sense that it's this laundry list of things to do to gain some kind of saving righteousness before God. Rather, this is a call to recognize the danger. That the Torah gives us practices that when adhered to adds blessing to our lives. It reminds us of God's principles and that sin and uncleanness remain and there are ever-present hazards to a believer. Let's read a little bit of Numbers chapter 5. Open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 5. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 151. Numbers chapter 5, we're going to start reading at verse 5, just a few verses. Adonai said to Moses, tell the people of Israel, when a man or a woman commits any kind of sin against another person and thus breaks faith with Adonai, he incurs guilt. He must confess that sin which he's committed and he must make full restitution for his guilt, add 20% and give it to the victim of his sin. But if the person has no relative to whom restitution can be made for the guilt, then what is given in restitution for guilt will belong to Adonai, that is, to the priest, in addition to the ram of atonement through which atonement is made for him. Every contribution which the people of Israel consecrate and present to the priest will belong to Anything an individual consecrates will be his own to allocate among the priests, but what a person gives to the priest will belong to him. We're about to see some progressive revelation. Revelation that begins to introduce a principle that might have seemed to be an innovation of the New Testament. That is, until we studied the Torah. That is, it turns out this, new, this progressive revelation is not a New Testament concept at all. We have just read the hypothetical case of a person who's committed some kind of a crime or a fraud against another person. And then swore an oath to God that he had not done this thing. He lied to those charged with investigating the situation, and he lied to God. Now, up until this point in the Torah, lying to God is classified as an intentional sin. It's a type for which atonement was either very expensive or it's not even a But now, a momentous new dynamic is introduced to us. The dynamic of confession. And what exactly is confession? It's declaring that you indeed sin against God, 
that it was wrong and that you are repenting of it. In fact, the word used in verse 7 that is almost always translated in confess is in Hebrew, ve-it-badu. That literally means to declare. So what occurs here is that this straw man set up harms his fellow man. The next thing he does is lie to God about it by swearing an oath that he's innocent. And then later declares that indeed he's done wrong. Confess is not a mistranslation, but by using something closer to the original meaning like declare, you see just what the act of confession consists of. Here's the dynamic of confession. Every sin is essentially unforgivable if it's not because to not confess it is in the Torah way of thinking a lie to God lying to God is an intentional and high-handed sin for which there's no atonement by confessing you are now no longer lying to God, but instead you are agreeing with Him that you've trespassed against Him. Now, sin can be atoned for because you are acknowledging that sin's been See, the thing is this. The condition of the heart is always the priority of sacrificial system. An unrepentant man offers a sacrifice is not forgiven. The sacrificial system was not a forgiveness ending. It was only efficacious for the one who confesses and repents. The specific type of sacrifice dealt with here is the asham, that reparation offering. It is that kind of sacrifice designed for when a person breaks the law and injures another person, bodily or material, materially, and now must pay a price. The price is complete reparation to the individual plus 20% more. And then the sinner must also bring a prescribed sacrifice to the priest for atonement for what he's done. So when a crime is committed against another person, the usual procedure is first reparation to the injured party plus a penalty to that injured party plus a sacrifice of atonement. Boy, is that an expensive lesson. You don't want to do that anymore. And wouldn't it be nice if that was still possible in our society today? Wouldn't that be a great way to go? A person vandalizes a school they're caught and they have to personally restore the school to its original state and pay an additional penalty of 20% to the school. And if they refused, they became the property of the school. Of course, I'm not advocating slavery. But from another perspective, is that really any worse than having your life and liberty removed and put to a cage for months or years? And who benefits from any of that? Who benefits from people being in jail forever? Actually, the innocent wind up paying for the criminals' livelihoods while they're behind bars. And man, is that expensive. 
Would it be better for the criminal to have to put his life on hold, focus every hour of the day on making his victim whole, plus adding a penalty amount, and then he's freed of his obligation? As it is now, we put a criminal in jail, and he or she usually comes out worse than when they went in. And all the victim usually gets is some kind of satisfaction knowing the criminal was punished. That's not the way the Bible established justice. So it didn't work very well. Now, on the occasion where the injured party was killed, the result, or time had passed and the person that had been badly injured died of of non-related causes, then the criminal still had to pay all the reparation to the injured kin's party. I read to the injured party, uh, injured uh, party's kin. If there was no living kin to pay it to, then that money went to the priesthood. Why? Because you still gotta pay. This was another innovation that's very unique the Hebrews and other cultures and societies, unclaimed property resulting from law-breaking or reparations that should have gone to kin but there's no one living, guess where that went? To the state. To the government. And who was that? The king. He got it. Here, by God's definition, he receives it by means of priesthood. Now, from a purely practical standpoint, what is happening is that about 600,000 men had been organized into an army, the Israelite army. And if there was, a, there was constant bickering and using God's name in vain, and if there was no clear way to make peace with God and have harmony amongst themselves, this army would just disintegrate. This is why, in the New Testament, this same principle is brought forward and used to explain how disciples of Yeshua are going to be able to function as a community for the kingdom of God. And it's expressed in the book of Matthew in this way, in Matthew 5.23. If, therefore, you are presenting your offering at the altar, and you remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your offering there before the altar and go on your way. First of all, be reconciled to your brother and then present your offering. And by the way, please notice what's happening here and who are we talking to. This is talking to believers and what are they doing? Presenting an offering at the altar and being given instructions on how to do it. So I thought the law was dead gone. And here we find it in operation and being commanded in the book of Matthew. Well, let's read a little bit more of Numbers chapter 5. We'll read verses 11 through 30. Adonai said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel if a man's wife goes astray and she's unfaithful to that is, if another man goes to bed with her without her husband's knowledge so that she becomes impure secretly and there's no witness against her, 
and she is not caught in the act, then if a spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he's jealous of his wife, and she has become impure, or for that matter, if the spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife, and she has not become impure, he's to bring his wife to the priest, along with the offering for her, two quarts of barley flour on which he has not poured olive oil or frankincense, because it's a grain offering for jealousy, a grain offering for remembering, for recalling guilt mind. The priest will bring her forward and place her before Adonai. The priest will put holy water in a clay pot. And then the priest will take some of the dust on the floor of the tabernacle and put it in the water. And the priest will place the woman before Adonai, unbind the woman's hair, put the grain offering for remembering in her hands, the grain offering for jealousy. And while the Kohen has in his hand the water of embitterment and cursing, the priest will make her swear by saying to her, If no man has gone to bed with you, if you have not gone astray to make yourself unclean while under your husband's authority, then be free from this water of embitterment and cursing. But if you have in fact gone astray while under your husband's authority and become unclean, because some man other than your husband has gone to bed with you, then the priest is to make the woman swear with an oath that includes a curse. And the colon will say to the woman, May Adonai make you an object of cursing and condemnation among your people by making your private parts shrivel up and your abdomen swell up. May this water that causes the curse go into your inner parts and make your abdomen, abdomen swell and private parts shrivel up. And the woman is to respond, Amen, Amen. And the priest is to write these curses on a scroll. And she needs to wash them off into the water of embitterment and then make the woman drink the water of embitterment and cursing. The water of cursing will enter her and become bitter. Then the priest is to remove the grain offering for jealousy from the woman's hand, wave the grain offering before Adonai and bring it to the altar. And the priest is to take a handful of the grain offering as its reminder portion, make it go up in smoke on the altar afterwards. He is to make the woman drink the water. When he's made her drink the water, then if she is unclean and has been unfaithful to her husband, the water that causes the curse will enter her and become bitter, so that her abdomen swells, her private parts shrivel up, and the woman will become an object of cursing among her people. But if the woman is not unclean, but clean, then she'll be innocent, and she will have children. This is the law for jealousy. When either a wife under her husband's authority goes astray and becomes unclean, or the spirit of jealousy comes over her husband and he becomes jealous of his wife, then he is to place the woman before Adonai, and the priest deal with her in accordance with all of this law. The husband will be clear of guilt, but the wife will bear the consequence of her guilt. This is pretty interesting. Actually, it seems almost out of place in the Bible in some ways, but here it is. So do we go around or we do? These passages cover the issue of a man who suspects his wife of adultery. And in a very rare, at least for the Bible, very rare narrative, the precise words are prescribed that are to be spoken in this ritual to make a determination if this wife is guilty. Now while this kind of thing is quite normal in most Middle Eastern cultures. It's almost non-existent in the Holy Scriptures. 
usually a, just a broad outline for ritual procedures provided, and then the exact word of the oaths and the prayers that are to be used left pretty much undefined. The lack of detail in the Torah of some of the ritual procedures is what the earliest Hebrew traditions sought to remedy. So we must not assume that Hebrew tradition is necessarily an error or an opposition to scriptures. Often traditions necessary to fill in missing pieces of how to conduct a worship service or celebrate a biblical festival or perform a circumcision ceremony or all kinds of other things. Now, just like the matter of what to do when a person commits a criminal act against someone and then lies about it, this matter of a man merely suspecting his wife of adultery must have been a reasonably common occurrence. Otherwise, its prominent place in numbers doesn't make any sense. And it's highly idealistic as the regulations and principles of Torah are, they were also needed. They were practical. Suddenly, thrusting two or three million people together in such extreme circumstances as they would have faced out in the wilderness and under what must have been a pretty densely packed tent city not much privacy in a culture where modesty was required but now is difficult to maintain would have made the likelihood of men and women coming into human contact in ways they shouldn't have all the more tempting and problem. So methods of dealing with it and discouraging had to be established. And verse 12 says, if the man's wife has gone astray and broken faith, notice the parallel use of the term breaking faith when it came to lying to God, two verses earlier, and then here in relation to suspected adultery between a man and his wife. Just as the wilderness tabernacle is the best possible but limited earthly and physical representation of the spiritual dwelling place of God, so is the primary purpose of marriage the best possible earthly and physical representation of our spiritual relationship with God. So this Old Testament principle is again brought forward to the New Testament when we learn that we as believers are to be compared as being to being like the bride of Christ. Revelation 19.7 Let us rejoice and be glad and, be, and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now, adultery is a topic that is covered at several points in the Bible. And this is because marriage is such an important model of God's relationship with mankind. But adultery was a common problem. It began in just a few generations after Adam and Havad, Adam and Eve. Those adulterous people, by the way, were wiped out in this great flood. But then within a few generations of Noah, adultery was common again. Therefore, all the ancient law codes that we've been fortunate enough to uncover I'm going back to a time well before Abraham, they all contain laws and procedures for dealing with adultery. Because even pagans recognize 
recognize the danger that that presented to a society. And when we examine the Mari documents and the law of Hammurabi and a few others of these ancient legal codes, we find that adultery was dealt with not as a matter of crime, but kind of off the books as a matter of uh, religion and, and, and something that's personal. Now, it might surprise you to know despite all the cavorting and fraternizing of the gods and goddesses and all the infamous orgies between the gods and goddesses, adultery among humans was usually considered wrong. In fact, most of these cultures viewed adultery as an affront against the gods. Perhaps as much or more as an indiscretion of a husband against a wife or vice versa. Now, most of the time, it was the wife that was accused because these Middle Eastern cultures were male-dominated. And most of the time, the husband had the legal right to kill his wife if she was caught in the act. But apparently, that didn't happen all the time. Most times, the husbands did not kill his wife, but he did divorce her or he lowered her status among all his other wives and concubines or something on that order. With Israel, however, it was all quite different. Adultery within Israel was a crime. And it was as much part of the law code as murder or theft. The law code of Leviticus made the only penalty for adultery be death. There was no option of mercy. There was no lesser sentence. Which is why these verses in Numbers are all the more difficult to deal with because the woman in this case will not be put to death even if she is found guilty. I'm going to tell you bluntly, the most mainstream Jewish and Christian Old Testament scholars say that Numbers 5 has undergone a lot of redaction. In fact, that belief, there's no doubt. Maybe she's even confessed. The key here is that men have witnessed it, the wife may have admitted to it, but this is just a matter of carrying out the law. There is no trial per se. There aren't two sides to the story. Determining the truth is not the issue. This whole thing's a slam dunk. But in Numbers 5, it's a different matter. In Numbers 5, we are told four different times that the husband was merely suspicious or jealous. And that the wife claims innocence. So what do we do? And since the custom of that era was that adultery was a religious personal matter and it was all about shame and honor that a husband could kill his wife if he was convinced that she cheated on him and the law wouldn't prosecute him if he did that. So that happened a lot. And Numbers 5 put a stop to it because these verses call for a trial by God. And since God was the only witness, God had to decide. But how is the case to be presented to God? How does he make his decision then known to humans? This was accomplished by means of a carefully defined water ordeal upon the woman. And then whatever happened to the woman over time as a result of the ritual indicated God's decision. This is where things get pretty sicky.
You watch. Magic or sacred water that someone drinks and then something either happens or doesn't happen due to keep guilt or innocence was pretty standard practice throughout even the most advanced cultures. Our own American Indians practiced. And it was also the basis of early American witch hunts whereby a suspected witch was placed on a dunking stool. Remember all that? You're back in school. Plunged into the water and if she drowned, she was guilty. She survived, she was innocent. And no doubt the same mindset and belief system played a role in the golden calf incident where the gold of the idol was ground up and placed in the water and participants in constructing the idol had drank it. The water ordeal procedure we find here in numbers is almost identical with procedures found in law texts of other ancient cultures of that era. In a middle Assyrian text is a law that reads, they will drink water, they will draw water, drink, swear, and be pure. In a Mari document, the dirt under the jam of the gate of Mari they took and dissolved in water and then drank. Those spoke, thus spoke Ea, swear to the gods. See, this is a really similar to what we're reading here in Numbers. Further, the basic framework for the Mari and Hammurabi codes involved a combination of a water ordeal and an oath that had to be sworn. And basically the concept was that the accused person who drank the magic water swore an oath to the gods, and if they'd done what they were accused of, then certain terrible things would spontaneously happen to them. And if those bad things didn't happen, then they were innocent. Turn your Bibles to John chapter. John, book of John chapter. You have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1340. I'm just going to read the first 11 verses. John chapter. Yeshua went to the Mount of Olives, and at daybreak he appeared again in the temple court, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. And the Torah teachers and the Pharisees brought in a woman who had been caught committing adultery and made her stand in the center of the group. Then they said to him, Rabbi, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in our Torah, Moses commanded that such a woman was stoned to death. What do you say about it? And they sent this to trap him so that they might have ground for bringing charges against him. But Yeshua bent down and began writing in the dust with his finger. And when they kept questioning him, he straightened up. And he said, The one of you who is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at him. And then he bent down and he wrote in the dust again. And on hearing this, they began to leave one by one, the older ones first, until he was left alone with the woman still there. And standing up, he was said to her, Well, where are they? And no one condemned you. And she said, No one, sir. And she was said, Neither do I condemn you. Now go and don't send anyone. Notice something. Notice that something very different has occurred here concerning adultery. Rightly so. 
the fair uh, the Pharisees said the Torah demanded death for this woman because she was subject to the Levitical law that was about a woman on the act of adultery. This is why the statement that she was caught in the act is key. Otherwise, the law in Numbers 5 applies. A law that does not allow a suspected but unproved act of adultery to be punished. But Yeshua says, go and sin no more, I'll not condemn you for it. Condemn doesn't just mean to find you guilty. It sets out punishment. It doesn't mean, like in our modern society, declare before the world that what you did was wrong. To stand and have the world shake its collective finger at you. Humiliate. The word condemn means being assigned the death penalty. The curse of the law is condemnation for disobedience. The curse is condemnation. Condemnation means getting the death penalty. The curse of the law isn't the law itself. It's the death penalty that comes from violating the law. Jesus was saying to the woman, I hereby do not apply the death penalty to you even though you deserve it. Now, I often go out of my way to explain what pagan cultures did and how they thought because I don't want to do what too many flustered Bible scholars and pastors do when they run into stuff like this water ordeal for the used woman in the Bible. Turn it into an allegory and make the whole problem vanish into a using a whole truckload of really nice sounding Christian terms and phrases which in the end have nothing in the world to do with what the past we are seeing in Numbers 5 the echoes of ancient and pagan practices among the Hebrews in this case it's about trying to determine guilt or innocence of this woman suspected of adultery now I've told you on several occasions that if we're going to understand What's happening in the Bible, we have to take it in the context of the people and the culture and the times it was written. And these Israelite people, while being declared holy by Jehovah and being set apart by Jehovah's for service to him, were certainly thoroughly pagan in their ways and customs and thinking. Now, this revelation may upset Jews and Christians alike, but such is the case, and the Bible constantly speaks about it, and the prophets are constantly warning Israel to quit it. Now, I want to remind you that God himself made it clear that he did not choose Israel because they were a more faithful people, because they weren't. Or because they shunned other gods and worshipped him alone. Because they didn't. Or because they behaved in more civilized ways. Or they were inherently kinder than most. None of this would describe Israel. He chose Israel for his own good reasons. Which he has not chosen to share with us. Not because of any error on their part. And if we're honest about it, Jehovah typically chose people who were the least likely to succeed. Not those with the greatest fortitude or inner strength. See, it's the same thing for we believers in Yeshua. We were just as pagan and weak and prone to evil as anybody else. But he allowed us into his kingdom and into service to him anyway 
because we agreed with him on one issue. Jesus Christ. And just as most of the ancient Hebrews continued to behave in as pagan a way as their neighbors, even though they had personally witnessed these incredible miracles, the presence of God, they had agreed to follow the Torah, so do a lot of Christians, except Christ. But other than showing up for church on Sundays, generally continue in their same lifestyle, they continue making the same kinds of decisions, and they look exactly like the world remaining six days and 23 hours each week. See, this is why we need to take the scriptures in total and accept them as they are. They tell the truth, the unvarnished truth, the unnice truth. Sometimes the truth isn't all nice and neat and pretty. You know, we want it. But just as God used the extreme and evil decadence of the Roman Empire as a tool to spread the gospel... After Yeshua's death and resurrection, and just as he currently uses America's wicked, out-of-control infatuation with wealth and materialism and, and, and self, he funds missionaries and does other good works for his kingdom. He also used the Hebrews' complicity and closeness to paganism to achieve his purposes. God has used men's evil for good, always. After all, Yehovah has only ever had one perfect tool to work with on planet Earth, Yeshua. All the rest of us are pretty defective. Probably ought to be returned for a refund. So let's rapidly review this water ordeal for the woman suspected of adultery. The ritual goes like this. First, her jealous husband brings the suspected wife to a priest along with an offering barley. Second of all, the woman is taken by the priest and placed in front of the tabernacle, tabernacle courtyard, which is meant, which is, this is what's meant by bringing her before the Lord. Third, the priest puts holy water into a special container and then he takes dust from the tabernacle floor and mixes it into Fourth, the priest hands the woman the barley and unbinds her hair. Fifth, the priest stands the woman uh, stands before the woman while holding the holy water and recites an oath. And the woman agrees, visions the oath by saying Amen. Next, the priest writes down the oath. He just pronounced and then washes the freshly inked letters off the surface in the same vessel that holds the holy water. Dust. Seventh, the barley the woman has been holding is taken back from the woman by the priest, and then is presented to Jehovah as a burnt offering on the altar. Eight, now the woman drinks this mixture of holy water, dust, and ink. Yummy. And ninth, certain things happen to the woman if she's guilty. Nothing happens if she's innocent. Now the certain things that are to happen to a guilty woman are a little bit masked because Hebrew idioms are used. Scripture says that if she is guilty, her thigh will sag and her belly will swell. Our complete Jewish Bible has the meaning a little better in focus. It's, what it's getting at is her reproductive organs will shrivel up, shrivel up. And actually, this makes all kinds of sense. In an act of adultery, 
by using her genitals, the woman has sinned. Therefore, it's her genitals that are going to bear the punishment. What this amounts to is if, is that if she's pregnant from the affair, the baby will die. And if she is not pregnant, she'll become barren for the rest of her life. Let me be clear. No human is doing anything physically to this woman to cause her to abort a child, sterile. This mixture of water and dust and ink, this isn't poisonous. It doesn't cause harm. Oh, pride and taste. Rather, the end result is a supernatural judgment of God. The elements of which are wrapped up in this ritual and the water precaution she's going to drink. Now, what can be difficult for people of our era to understand is the devastation of a woman of that era by becoming barren. It was the female equivalent, equivalent, literally, of a male becoming emasculated, being made, being castrated. A barren woman has lost her value as a human being because bearing children had everything to do with the spirit or essence of the father, her husband, continuing on in some mysterious and undefined way in his children after the father died. Children were even a means to and a measure of wealth because the more children you had, the more work could be done for the benefit of the family. And since the work was usually either tending crops or watching over animals, more children meant more land could be cultivated, more animals could be cared for. A son was essential for passing forward the authority and the name of the clan. For a woman to fail in her duty to bring new life into this world was the ultimate humiliation and it was considered an open rebuke from God. Not simply a sad episode in her life. In the end, because it was assumed that a woman was barren because God cursed her, she was often of lower status than other women. And she would be shunned. So for God to pronounce guilt on the woman suspected of adultery by making her reproductive organs unusable was perhaps second in magnitude severity only to death. Now we're going to continue next week by comparing this with this story we read, John 8, of the woman accused of adultery brought by Pharisees to Jesus to see just what he'd do about it. And we have some interesting conclusions from it. So please stand.